Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Welcome to Angular Insights. We're very excited to have you here today for our eighth Angular Insights session with Miha Breakstone, who is the co-founder of Chorus.ai and a serial entrepreneur. He's going to be talking about building an AI-driven startup. And with that, I will pass it over to Gil. Thanks so much, Anne. And thank you, Miha, for doing this. Um, super excited to have Micha here. I was lucky enough to be a, a very small, tiny, minuscule angel in Chorus AI and, and was really excited to meet Ben Roy back early on in their journey when they had a very compelling vision for how to use uh, NLP and machine learning to improve the way voice calls were analyzed. But Micha's been doing this for a long time. Prior to Chorus, he was part of the founding team at Ginger and he was an advisor to Sumly. Both companies were successfully acquired and Micha's been one of the leading figures in the NLP and AI community. So we're super thrilled to have him. He lives in Tel Aviv. It says here in the notes that you, you hope one day to become a novelist. So I'm going to add that. I hope you, you get your wish after many more successful exits. But uh, over to you, Micha. Thank you so much, Anne and Gil. It's a pleasure being here. I really appreciate your invite. And it's, I feel privileged to reciprocate, Gil, because you, you may have been a small investor in terms of the amount of money you put into to Chorus. But as I told you many times, I think your help in the very early days and advice and how to set ourselves up for funding was, was really important. So thank you for that. And it's a real pleasure being here. Today, I'd like to share with you five thoughts on building an AI-driven startup. They're not exactly tips, but thoughts that I've gathered across uh, my career in various different companies, most recently at Chorus. The first one will be a rule number zero, basically that you're first and foremost a startup. I'll talk a little about the founding team. I'll challenge you and ask you whether you're actually building an AI startup. I'll talk about reinventing the wheel, when to do so and when not to do. And I'll talk a little bit about PhDs and other experts. The first rule, or rule number zero, is your startup. And that means that if you add AI to your mission statement, that doesn't really earn you any discounts. And all the regular rules still apply. What I mean by that is that you're looking to solve a problem that begs a real solution. You're looking to bring on the best possible people, really insanely good. You need to build uh, seamless execution. You want to create a defensible moat, be it with AI or otherwise, and you want to find a path to exponential growth. And unless you're building a company whose value proposition is the actual algorithms and the IP, for example, DeepMind, which isn't the case in you know 99.9% of the cases, so make sure you focus on building a healthy and viable company before you think of it as a creature of AI. So yes, you're building an AI startup, but first and foremost, you're building a startup itself. So the founding team. So as with any good startup, it's best to have both technical prowess and business acumen. Obviously, those are risking saying the obvious. For an AI startup, it doesn't mean you need uh, your CTO to have a PhD in machine learning, or you don't need your CEO to have an MBA, though, of course, those things don't hurt. But it does mean that the founding team should have a strong track record in relevant AI fields and understand the market and its dynamics. I summarize it here as building a heavily AI-dependent startup without an AI expert on the founding team is pretty much like building a fashion company without a founding designer or to use a different analogy, building a fintech company without someone that has a deep financial background on the founding team. Namely, it's probably doable, but not recommended. So relatively very hard. Let's move on. Are you sure you're building an AI startup? So key questions to ask yourself 
when you begin is, can your startup be done without AI? And even more precisely, can your startup be done without building the AI components yourselves? And even if your company's vision is to use AI to deliver value, you need to be asking yourself whether the AI needs to be proprietary. N- namely, do you need to build it in-house, even if you do actually need AI? So first question, do you actually need AI? And the second is, do you need to build it in-house? And the answers usually hover around, if AI is central to what you do, then there are good reasons to consider building the things in-house. There are various different reasons. I won't go into them in this talk, but usually it's about accuracy, uh, unit economic privacy of the data, and doing things that were just previously not done. Those are usually the, the, the reasons. I won't delve into them now, but if you have one of those reasons and AI is central, you may want to consider building it in-house. If AI isn't cardinal, to your value proposition. What you may end up doing is spending an insane amount of time and focus hiring experts on developing tech that you could either outsource or entirely do without. Point of advice here, if you're not sure if it's borderline, reach out to an expert, somebody that's done this before, a CEO, a CTO, a co-founder that's done this before. Review different considerations, especially if you're not an AI person. You may discover that doing something with AI doesn't necessarily mean that you're an AI company or that you need to be building it uh, in-house. This is the fourth point. So reinventing the wheel. If you've determined that you are a true AI company, that's great. Hopefully you you know either have an AI expert on the founding team or you're building up the team to support them. And often with such a team and expertise, it might be hard to push back and ask, wait a second, do do we actually have to solve this ourselves? And there are many out-of-the-box solutions today, including challenging tasks. So things that in the past were unthinkable that they would be commoditized, things like ASR, automatic speech recognition, like transcription, more recently translation, and earlier on image recognition. Things that in the past you had to build yourself today, there are simple models out there on Amazon, on Google, Microsoft that you can use with pre-built solutions. So it's a really important question to ask whether or not something out of the box exists that you can start, at least start off with. To note, let's just make it very clear that AI projects like basically any deep research can easily go over budget and it can cause your team to miss deadlines. So make sure you absolutely need to build this in house before you do so. And the recommendation would be to start with the scrappiest already available solutions for your MVP before you reinvent the wheel. So to take a concrete example, if you're building a transcription engine, if you're building a translation engine, start out with what, what is available out there and then learn from it, build on top of it, build with the data that you're you're accruing. Okay, so PhDs and other experts. So Joel Spalski, I think he was one of the founders of Trello, says, you're looking for people who are one smart and two get things done. But there's also a less censored version of that. So with AI and PhDs, I think that's even more pronounced. Indeed, you, you do not need a PhD in machine learning to be an incredible machine learning developer. And although in my experience, uh, most people that have PhDs in machine learning are usually incredibly smart and tend to be also quite good coders, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll thrive in a startup. So look for people, my advice would be, first and foremost, look for people that are seeking to make a real impact on the world, right? Not trying to improve a previous best-in-class solution by 2%. Look for PhDs who love your vision, that you can connect to, that connect to your vision, that like your product, that believe that your product can actually make a dent in the world. And something that is maybe counterintuitive, but my experience is looking for people that actually want to one day build their own startups 
is a huge plus. It's not a minus, right? A lot of founders are afraid of taking in people like that because hey, they'll abandon ship. But it turns out these people, because they already inherently, viscerally feel what it will be to, to be a founder, they're, they tend to be much more dedicated. They care tremendously, not only about their work, but about how their work affects the company in general. They usually treat you well because they know they will want to be treated well. So they'll, they won't abandon ship without forewarning. And some of my absolute best hires have been people that have gone on to found companies and or have been founders in the past. So maybe counterintuitively, but people that are dreaming of one day becoming founders, I found as a great proxy for people that will be uh, terrific PhD experts, quote unquote, in that startup setting. I say that hiring a PhD who's more interested in the perfect theoretical solution rather than in getting uh, the product shipped can prove disastrous. And you may uh, end up losing weeks, even months on an additional iota of accuracy that might be worthy of a publication, but definitely doesn't make a difference in the world. So that's about PhDs. And by the way, PhD is just a code name. It doesn't have to be somebody that actually has a PhD. It could be anybody, a master's, somebody that is into publishing papers, let's put it that way, or has published papers. Uh, so I'll end this part with some closing notes. Obviously, these five tips or thoughts are very far from being silver bullets. Building a startup is one of the hardest things you can do, really one of the hardest things, probably other than being a doctor, I think is probably the hardest role you can one can assume or take on. AI startups are not different, but they do have some special characteristics. And make sure that you understand why you're building AI. Whatever startup you're building, whatever AI you're using, make sure you understand why you're building AI. Again, those four or five reasons that I alluded to earlier, accuracy and, and unit economics, data privacy, taking on challenges. And maybe the final tip or the final closing note would be that find people that have a pre-trained model mind upon in building AI startups and get them to mentor you to make wiser decisions along the way. That's a more meta point of don't reinvent the wheel of, of how to build a, an AI startup. So I'll pause here and I'm more than happy to take questions. Awesome. Thank you, Michal. Let me start by asking you to double click on a word. You made some very good points about if AI is cardinal or central, do this. If it's not, do that. What does it mean for AI to be cardinal? How do you know? I'm assuming there's many cases where a startup is, is deeply convinced that AI is cardinal to what they do, and it turns out that it's not. Can you walk us through that? How would you help a founder figure out if that's really the case or not? And do you find that's an easy determination or not? Right. It's a, that's a fabulous question. And often founders get confused with that as well. Um, after I left course, I was thinking of various different ideas, and some of them involved conversation intelligence for very obviously domains other than sales. And when looking at them, I said, great, I have this uh, amazing AI tool set. I know how to build these things. Why don't I apply it to this vertical or to this domain or to this problem? And one of the things I found was, wait a second, great, conversation intelligence or AI can solve this amazingly, but actually you don't really need AI to solve it because it's cheaper to do with humans. It's not at a scale that requires AI. So a good proxy question is, number one, can people do it? Number one, and if people can do it, is it worthwhile maybe having people do it rather than AI? And very imprecise way of doing it is asking, how hard is it for people to do it? How hard would it be for a computer to emulate it? And does it do you need a, a computer to do it or machine learning to do it in order to scale? So that's not a full answer, but it's one proxy that I like. For Chorus, for example, the question was, A, we believe that AI would be able to analyze, deconstruct sales conversations pretty well into the main topics, into what's happening when, the main components, what questions, what pain points, what challenges were raised. 
That's number one. And two, we realized very quickly that this is something that people could not do, not because of the quality, but because of the sheer scale. Dozens and dozens of, of calls happening every week on every sales team. That it, wasn't, it didn't scale to have humans annotate and deconstruct these conversations. So that's how we thought about it, whether or not AI was absolutely needed or not. So I hope that gives a partial answer. Absolutely. Let me ask you about an article that's been important to my thinking. Back in February, Martin Casado from A16Z published a, a piece called The New Business Model of AI. And he framed a lot of things that I'd been thinking about and obviously didn't have the brilliance to encapsulate the way, the way he did. But he basically argues that AI companies are going to have lower gross margins over time than we're used to seeing in software. I wanted to run through those reasons with you and take his three reasons and turn them into three questions. The first reason he gives is he says, cloud costs and labeling costs are so considerable that you just have to gear yourself up to lower costs. I and mean, maybe the second question which we can bring in there is a lot of these things involve in some form or another, at some point, reliance on the human in the loop. So that also adds to your costs. And we've all seen examples of companies that have basically not built a model. They've just hired a bunch of mechanical Turks somewhere to do some of the work so they could pretend to have a model while they're building a model, maybe or maybe not. Um, but their costs end up being much higher as a result. Do you agree or disagree with that? And what is your sense of, of cost structure and getting to profitability and scalability in an AI company, given the realities of building that? So look, human in the loop is obviously it's a huge cost center and it's needed. I think he says in the article that it's needed on, on two sides, one for one for the training process, for the uh, the tagging itself. And the second is a kind of moderation or making sure that the AI doesn't go entirely insane. For tagging, obviously, it's a huge cost. I can say from various different companies that I've worked at, we've spent sometimes, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in tagging, depending on how intricate, how complex, how large the model you were that you needed to train. And I think, you know, he mentions that it's a kind of a trap to consider it a one-time cost. Okay, so we'll train it once, we'll tag it once, we'll train and everything will be okay. That isn't true. It isn't true because the world changes, because uh, the models that you need change as the world changes. There are very few domains, even language, even the way people speak. New words come into language much more frequently than we would think. COVID-19, who would have thought that should be transcribed half a year ago in today's Obviously, it's an extremely salient. So the world changes, models need to adapt, the models need to react differently as the world changes, more data comes in. You're going to need to retrain eventually. You can try to space those out, it's number one. Number two is for the point of once in production to help guardrail the AI, that is often the case. There are some amazing businesses that were built on that hypothesis. Actually, right before founding course, I nearly founded a company called Gloss that it was doing uh, what kind of Lilt and Unbabble are uh, doing today, which was basically human in the loop for, for translation. Machine translation can get you only so far and humans can correct it cheap in a very relatively time efficient way. There are other companies that do that for speech. A good friend of mine is a co-founder of a company called Vervet that has human in the loop for transcription. It's a really interesting solution, obviously costly, but I think that's also an opportunity. It's a different economical model. The cost is real. Try to make a lemonade out of the lemon. These days, uh, lemonade is a good thing. The third reason he gives, he, he uses the phrase, he says, AI lives in the long tail. And I think his point is that both different customers are going to have different model needs. And then every single customer has these unique edge case scenarios that show up once or twice. And that the value of your 
AI model or how good it is or how good it appears to be, how good it's perceived to be, is going to ultimately be judged by these edge cases that are maybe very rare, but they're very expensive to build into the model because you've got to train on those crazy cases. And that means you're constantly training models and constantly trying to run these edge cases through the system, which inflates your costs. What's your sense of that? And does that mean that this is just fundamentally not as appealing a software business as the age before AI, when all we had to do was build a you know, system of record and everyone was happy, right? This is much harder. Right. So I think, um, so he's absolutely right about the long tail. And I'll talk about why I, I agree with him on that. Does it make it less appealing? It, it means we're entering a new era, as I think the article states, an era in which it's not build one and sell many times. It's build one, sell many times and sell customization along with that or add a customization along with that. The reason it is true or from my experience why I feel it's true. There are two reasons. One, which you indeed mentioned, which is every new customer coming along has their own special requirements. If you're using transcription, so every customer has their own vocabulary. If you're doing translation, again, vocabulary. If your customer has specific needs for image recognition or anomaly recognition, you want to train models specifically on the data of a customer. Very often, there are great companies that do reduction of costs for cloud services. For example, they learn and train models based on the traffic or on the usage of a specific customer. They literally need to train a model for each customer. A great company of friends of mine is Granulate. That's exactly what they do. So you're going to need to train different models for each new customer. And in that regard, it is a, a long, a very, an infinite heavy tail. The other reason, which I don't know if he addresses in the article, is that even within a given customer, expect the unexpected, right? So we may be having this call. I have a, a young puppy at home. She may run in, make this terrible noise, and the transcription will completely fail. When we were training, we didn't have many puppies barking around here. That could definitely be the case. Basically, even given a specific customer, rather than looking at classical code where it's if X, then Y, that's how you would code. It was a branching factor, a known branching factor. You could deal with every contingency ahead of time. When you train a model, the, the paradigm is completely the opposite. You show the model, you show the, the training mechanism, a lot of information, tagged or untagged. It deduces, it builds a model once and for all, and it's deployed and good luck. So whatever it's seen or whatever it's been able to surmise from the learning stage, then great. Whatever it hasn't seen, not great. And by definition, you can't train on every single contingency in, in almost every case in, in the real world. So I'd have to strongly agree with him. I don't think it makes it less appealing. It means it's new, it's different, and there are different opportunities. It, it means it is more expensive to build. And the economics are different. Are there techniques for reducing those costs and reducing that complexity or managing it effectively? Yes. So first, there's just managing things well with a great engineering teams that have worked hand in hand with the research teams or the trainers just to ensure that if you have a thousand models, just make sure that what you're deploying, what the accuracy is on each, that there are processes in place, procedures in place to iterate and at least make sure that what you have is as good as what you hope it will be if you're going through all that extra effort to train and build customization. And another approach which is different is to create like uh, in-between models that are very good generic models that learn from all of your customers or various different use cases at once. And then you slightly tweak the model by adding a small component. For example, in transcription, you add a small graph to the main graph of transcription so that you trained the main graph once and for all, and by once and for all, once in a quarter, because you're going to need to update it in any case, or once half a year, uh, but it's only once. 
And then you add these mini graphs that you attach, these you know, small models that you attach for the edge cases. So those are architectures that are relatively new, maybe two, three years, um, still not you know, commonplace. When I we was talking about earlier about PhDs and expert, this is a place to use a PhD or expert that they can give you immense value just by knowing how to do these things that are still not, they're not bleeding edge, but they're definitely cutting edge and they're not prevalent yet within the industry. But building these in-between models is a good way of reducing costs because you're basically building a very good model that works for everyone and then attaching small models on to help infer in various cases what to do. Or rather, sometimes you use a very generic model. For example, if you're doing a transcription, but you don't know what language is going to come up. So you can build like this very generic model that just decides what language it is. And, and then you deploy it per, per specific language or for a specific accent. Cool. I want to ask you a little bit about your perspective on defensibility, both as a technologist and as an entrepreneur founder on the business side. There's three theories of defensibility in the new age of AI. One is the model itself. If you, you build a better model, you're defensible based on the model. Another one is the data. If I've got better data, then I'm going to have a better model by definition. And so it's all about access to data. And if I've got the right data, I'll have defensibility. And the third one is general software defensibility, right? Now, I'm a sort of a skeptic that models are defensible and I'm a skeptic that data is defensible. I, I agree there's edge cases, but I'd love your take on these kind of axes of defensibility. And when you think about companies you've been involved with, or companies you're going to be involved with, or companies you're advising, where do you really think defensibility lies? And can you give us maybe some examples of how to think about that? Yeah, so to disappoint you, I actually agree with you. I'll walk through why. The models themselves today versus five years ago, they're well-known recipes. There's open frameworks that you train. Basically, you're not reinventing anything. You're not inventing anything usually, unless you're really putting together a new algorithm, which is usually happens in academic settings or in, in research labs and stuff like that. Usually you're using a well-known recipe. That's all you're doing. And maybe experts will be better at converging on the right recipe or the right model quicker. But at the end of the day, models are comparable. The art would be to choose what algorithm to train with or what model to use. But you can it's all A-B testing in a sense. A-B testing and a huge amount of intuition allows you to condense times. So the model, I don't think, is usually defensible. Again, in except for the, the real edge cases like DeepMind, for example, would be a, a clear case where the model itself or the algorithm itself was, was a real moat. Or, but that's really sheer IP and, and real expert uh, knowledge that isn't the case for 99.9% .9 of startups. The data is a moat, but it's a temporary moat in the sense, just as I noted before, it's not you train once and for all. You train once and then you need to get more data and retrain and learn more and retrain again. So the data, yes, the more data you have, the, the better your model is, the more accurate it is, but algorithms change over time or evolve over time. So in the past, what these, there are new papers coming out all the time about how with less data you can do, you can achieve the same state of so. In that regard, I think data is a moat, but it's a, a very shallow moat or rather a temporary moat. And if you wait long enough, it disappears. So I would say it's more less of a moat. It's more of a first mover advantage or it's something that, that disintegrates quite quickly. In terms of general software, yeah, I, I fully agree. Executing well, building an amazing user experience, something that actually delivers on what it's supposed to do, that is explainable that is intuitive, that delivers the best value proposition, that, that is where in general, unfortunately, in some regard, that regard, defensibility comes in. There's some other points. If you have the data, you can build a model, you can reduce 
uh, unit economics. So that is some kind of a mode. But again, it's a temporary mode. It's not a long-term mode. In the past, by the way, data was a huge mode. Even within AI, it was much harder to get data. I remember, say, seven, eight years ago when we were training huge language models, we built you know, this amazing scraper to, to take down terras of text or billions and billions of tokens, which today, you know, with one click, you can get them. We invested millions of dollars in, in extracting text that would crawl, crawling text that today you just is easily available. And the model itself was a mode people didn't know. I remember the very early day of transition for speech recognition around 2013, maybe when Speech recognition was not being commoditized yet, but already deep speech recognition was already available. Building the model was hell. It would take weeks and it was a spaghetti of a million different scripts and there were no recipes uh, and you needed a real expert and so on and so forth. Today, things are moving to be much more streamlined. The more you get closer to the cutting edge and lean towards the, the, the bleeding edge, obviously it's very different. For example, if you are looking at the cutting edge of technology today, if you're looking at federated learning, for example, yes, model will be uh, a moat there be just because it's not yet well understood technology. So if you're looking to create a moat based on model, look at the edges of AI, look at where, you know, where today research is, and you'll be able to create moats with a model. In terms of data, again, I, I believe it, it's all transient. Data is becoming more and more open source by nature, and general principles always hold. Let me sharpen the question. I think some entrepreneurs seem to have believed for the past five years that because AI and ML were such a revolution in the way computation was getting done, that it might have rewritten the rules of what of sort of the fundamentals of business defensibility and that kind of logic. And I think I've always been aware, like open to that logic, but ultimately concluded that doesn't seem to have been the case in most cases and certainly not sustainably. I think you basically agree with that view. Is that I more think, or less the case? I think I agreed with what you first said. Now I didn't follow, so I don't know if I can agree or not. Okay. I, I didn't understand. In other words, that just because you're building an AI company and you're, even if AI is cardinal, what you're doing, that doesn't mean that your defensibility is going to come from a model or data or any of those kind of novel barriers, it, you still have to have great, sticky, defensible software that your customer can't get rid of and they love it and they enjoy using it and, and the sales process is slick and smooth and all, all of those things. That, in other words, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're still in the software business. We're still in the sales business. 100%. There are very few cases where an amazing model or data allow you not to deliver amazing software. There, there might be cases like that, but they're very few. If you go to really edge cases of privacy differentiation, being able to use uh, zero-knowledge proofs for certain things, and maybe then, then you can get away with not delivering a, a great experience. But AI in itself is, you know, when something becomes a buzzword, that it will be commoditized, to some degree at least. Great, thank you so much. We actually got a really interesting question from Ruben, who's a founder from Bulgaria. And he was asking when you're um, hiring um, for, especially focused on enterprise deals, what are some skills and experience that you should be looking for? You talked a little bit about how people who want to be founders one day are usually a good fit, but what are some other green flags that you should be looking for? Awesome, and this is for AI people specifically or in general for hiring? Uh, both. Okay. General for hiring for people in, in, in the enterprise, people that have worked with enterprise, have been at enterprise is always obviously a plus. People that understand the workflow, it's a huge question. Depends what role you're looking for. But if it's a go-to-market person, somebody that 
has experience on either side, so they understand the enterprise has completely different rules than startups and so on and so forth. They have the patience for long processes, understand how to identify champions and how to get the committee, quote unquote, to vote for you and so on and so forth. If it's people more on the R&D side and you're building for enterprise, people that are extremely well, perfectionists are really important. People that are hyper aware of privacy, of security, of compliance, of understanding that you cannot cut corners because that could be fatal to a company entirely. People that understand that a a large enterprise can change their minds, not quickly, but they can change it 180 degrees sometimes on the whim of a a new president that just came in. But for the AI people, I think people that more than anything are very aware of privacy, security, stuff like that, not to, to compromise data in any way. Great, thank you so much. We'll now be joined by Iran from Berlin. Hi, Micha. Great uh, to hear you. I'll follow up on a question that Gil asked, and it would be about the defensive moat. And I don't know if Chorus AI and dealt with selling to companies that try to solve that problem themselves, but how would you measure the defensive moat to an enterprise that's considering building an internal tool? How do you as a startup defend yourself from that enterprise that you are trying to sell to. Yeah. In, so, in other words, how do you convince an enterprise not to build it themselves? If it's close to their core business. So first is you don't try to build a solution for Amazon. That's number one. They're notorious for <laughs> the best ideas and building it themselves or making sure that it's starving you in a way and then buying you. But more, more generally speaking, enterprises usually will buy you if it saves them time. They won't try to do it. If they don't, if they think they can do it in-house for not too expensive or for a reasonable multiple, they may do it unless it's completely out of their focus or out of their tool house. If there are already overlapping areas, I just tread extremely carefully because you have no idea what's happening. You have no idea if the people you're speaking within the enterprise know even what the other side of the enterprise is doing. It's really hard to defend yourselves. Basically, the best way is to work with multiple enterprises so that you're not shot out of the water by just one. And definitely don't make yourself dependent on any single enterprise platform. So if you're building a, a solution that takes out insight from speech and you're trying to sell it to whatever one of the big enterprise in the area, Make sure that you're agnostic to the underlying speech recognition engine that you're using or build your own. And always try to do something that is not easy for an enterprise to do. And that's basically move very quickly. So something that that requires agility and thought and moving quickly as things evolve, that's usually things that enterprise are not good with. If you want to concretize the question by giving a more concrete example, I maybe can help with a specific example. But in in a general sense, always be suspicious and try not to be dependent on a single enterprise. I might ask it in a a different way, not on the defensive mode, but on the sales pitch, because there are some enterprises that uh, this this helps in your business, even if you haven't thought about doing this. And for some enterprises, you're trying to sell something that maybe it's a fun Tuesday for them. And if they'll try to convince their R&D to work on it, the R&D will push back because they want to work on it, even though it's not prioritized. How would you tackle that? Yeah, that's a difficult one. If uh, it's politics in the enterprise, I, I don't think there's any fear. If you're pitching an idea as a startup to an enterprise, it's pitching a VC. They're Chances of them taking it and 
you know, recommending to an internal group or to a different company to do it are very slim. And even if they do, they don't usually have the decision power there. So uh, stealing ideas is not something that's very prevalent, definitely not from a sales pitch. If it's trying to convince an internal team, as usual, it's, I don't think it's an AI question. I would try to always empower the R&D team. So always uh, make sure that they know that they are valued and they're very smart, but we also want to empower you. So give you tools. Yes, we know you, you can deploy the most amazing models, but here is something that can help you do this quicker, better, with more accuracy, and we want to work with you hand in hand. So try to find a champion within the R&D team as quickly as possible, work directly with them, and pat them on the ego, right? Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I don't know if I'm out of time, but if not, I do have another question. How much do non-ML experts, product or executives, should be involved in the ML research and paths, even if they define the KPI? Uh, if you don't have a leader in the research and ML team or group, how much should they be involved or let the team find the best solution? I think that's a great question. I would strongly urge for a leader to be involved in definition of OKRs, KPIs, OKRs mostly, understand what the experiments, the, the space of the experiments are, and then let the team do what they do best. On the one hand, make sure that you're completely aligned on what the goals are. Make sure that you are speaking in the exact same language have a, either a product person or a leader involved deeply, not to put brakes on things, but just as you're setting out for the race, just make sure that you're all speaking the same exact language and that you're not looking, what are the objectives and what, so to speak, the function you're trying to optimize for to use machine learning language. Once you have that, let them run wild. They know what to optimize for, let chaos reign and check in once every week or two just to make sure that they're making the progress in the right direction. But I would strongly advocate for or low touch points, but when you do have a touch point, ensuring that there's deep alignment. Thanks for your time. Some interesting things. Do you think that there is a high risk of winner-take-all in different verticals in AI, especially in the next five to 10 years as you look at real startups' life? And if you do, how far... Do you think a founder needs to consider existing competition before starting own company or consider what the likes of Plantier is working on? The likes of what Palantir is working on? Yes. Building a, a platform that can be applied and customized to every customer specifically, differently. It's a great question. I'm just guessing here or looking at examples. If you're going into a blue ocean, I think usually large blue oceans they have place for many strong players coming from you know in the area where chorus is there are three or four players and I think the die hasn't yet been cast it's, it's still at the end of the day there will be more than one winner there are other domains as well if you look at sales engagement outreach and sales law where, which have some degree of AI involved where the space is large it's nascent you'll have more than one winner the more you're looking at a very verticalized or, or very well-defined small vertical Obviously, there's more of a chance for that, but I don't think AI is different than anything else, basically. So this comes back to the question of the moat that, that Gil asked earlier. I don't think AI companies are different than other software companies in, in that regard. Companies that build great products, execute great, and have a great go-to-market motion will likely be able to, to create a real market for themselves. So 
I don't think AI is very different than others in, in this regard. That would be my two cents here. Great. Uh, thanks. I was starting to think about it in a way because I looked at companies that, for example, focus on AutoML. And when you think, of course, there are edge cases, but how many AutoML companies should there really exist? But I think definitely I'm encouraged by your answer. Yeah, I would definitely not be disheartened by finding one or two players in the space, especially if they're relatively old or they're moving slow. I, I would be more scared of up and coming young startups that have great teams and are out there to eat up the world than of companies that have been around for eight years or more. So if you think you can execute extremely well and somebody is doing something different, something in your domain, try to find a way to differentiate. It is important. The differentiation could be, at the end of the day, you could be differentiating essentially on execution. There'll be space. I, I would think out of the box in terms of how you could still position yourselves differently, but uh, I would not be entirely disheartened by, by the simple fact that there's one or two players in the field already. Hi, this is André Schuurman dialing in from the Netherlands. Thanks, uh, Mika, for your presentation. There were some great points in there. Uh, one additional consideration we face at WeSee is getting relevant and tagged or taggable training data, or in our case, training videos. What's your experience and, and learning? So it really depends on the domain and what you're looking for. But for example, if you're looking to train on text, there's huge repositories of text, and then you can look for... So for example, if you're looking to train on, say, a domain of the auto industry, right? You can handpick dozens of sentences that are on the auto industry, and then uh, slowly expand them using sentence embedding or similar other similarity scores and build a, a semi-supervised uh, domain-specific corpus. And then by using a system like Prodigy or something like that, you can use analysts to very quickly, rapidly expand the corpora that you're using to train models. So basically look for some similarity function for text. It could be sentence embedding, it could be word embeddings, it could be other similarity scores expand uh, probably best in a semi-supervised way to guarantee both accuracy and uh, scale. For similar things, I'm assuming I'm, I'm a text person, I'm an NLP person, I'm assuming there are other similarity functions for other domains. In AI, video visual is less my field, but if you looked at certain features of the video, be it the transcription or be it other visual cues, look for define a similarity function hone it to make sure that you are getting things that are similar. Use a semi-supervised way of doing it so that you have a human in the loop as a tagger, building kind of an, an interim larger corpus and then going wild. That would be my advice. My question is for speech analytics, do you, do you think there's a significant difference between B2B and B2C in terms of like your customer, right, your, the companies you work with, if they're B2B or B2C? Specifically for speech analytics, so on top of the speech recognition or whatever. So assuming the speech recognition is constant, yes, that's the question. So just analyzing things. Be, being able to extract relevant insights and so on. That's a great question. It's funny because most of my experience is selling to companies that sold to companies. It's a good question. Look, I'm not an expert on B2C. That's to be very open. So even B2B2C is a little hard for me to think, but... I would think also that when you're selling insights to B2C companies, make sure that they're able to extract insights on the specific user level rather than on trends, that they're able to 
empower end users rather than just generic insights that are not actionable? Let me try to reframe the question uh, for you, Michael, in, in a way that may be more generalizable. In the interplay between ML engineering teams and sales, right, where sales says, oh, I've got this lead, I've got this prospect, and I want to sell them on this product. But there's this risk, of course, that the model may need to be retrained, may not work. There's going to have to, there's going to, have to be a tension between sales wants to sell, the ML guy's like, I don't want to spend another $100,000 training models just to serve that one customer that you may or may not even close. How do you as a company manage those kinds of tensions, right? If you've built a B2B, let's suppose a B2B sales analyzer for Chorus, and suddenly a sales guy says, I've got this big B2C lead. What do you do at that point? Are you selling a machine learning solution to these companies? Let's suppose you have a product that you're selling that's powered by a machine learning algorithm. And you have a set of customers that you can serve reasonably well with some confidence. But your sales force, right? Like the traditional model is the sales guys are running around trying to sell. And they are oftentimes getting feature requests. And in normal software, those feature requests are, as you said earlier, they're they're binary or they're linear. It's going to cost us a few days or maybe a few weeks of R&D work. But if the count is large enough, we can pretty clearly promise that we're going to have it by such and such a date. And so the tradition of selling software that didn't fully exist yet is well enshrined in the annals of enterprise software, right? In the AI case, you're selling manufacturing inspection, optical inspection for manufacturing, and suddenly you have a new use case, which is different. And the lighting conditions are different, and the machinery is different, and the sensitivity required is different. And you really have no clue if the model is going to work or not for that specific customer. How does a company manage that tension between sales leads that may stress the model and the model building on the back end that you need to build to support those, right? Do you find yourself training models just to support a sales process with no guarantee of closing? Those, those kinds of issues. Or you've sold something, customers dying to buy it, gives you money, turns out the model doesn't work on their specific case. Got it. So we often got asks that required to, in various different companies, that required us to rebuild entire components or retrain entire components. I think one of the things we always asked ourselves, would it generalize? Would it, did we foresee this helping us serve other customers quickly in the future? Because things will change. And because, as we talked before about the very large tail, if if you're doing something that's just a one-off or a a complete bespoke solution for a specific customer, if there's no, if unless it's make or break customer, it needs to help you in some way. And by that, it means it's either transferable to other companies, or you learn something that will allow you to accelerate when you're building other solutions. So we would have these asks, why don't you train this model for, I'll just take in, uh, this isn't a real example, but for example, you're working with a company and you're transcribing text and it turns out that half their reps have a very strong, whatever accent, doesn't matter, you train for it. The question is, are you going to get benefit other than satisfying the customer? So one, do you expect that accent to come up in other customers? That's one. Two, even if you're expecting other accents to, to come up, is the training for a specific accent, are you learning something for it? Will it expedite your solution to other customers? And three, what value you actually get from solving it for that specific customer. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. Micha, this, is, this has been great. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure hearing your thoughts on these things. And I think you're pretty solidly at the cutting edge. Thank you again. And thank you all for joining. Thank you so much, Yil and Anne, for hosting me. I really appreciate it.